Imagine for a moment that, uh, an old, imagine an old man alone, failing in health. He's isolated from family and friends. He's so poor that he cannot even afford a winter coat for himself. He changed careers midlife, but there is no pension plan or medical benefits for his startup organization. Not only that, his new enterprise seems to be faltering. And one more thing, he is incarcerated under capital charges. If found guilty, he will most likely lose his life. And it looks as if he will be found guilty. Is that your picture of success? For some of you recent graduates, is, is that the, the kind of situation that you hope to find yourself in later in life? Put yourself in his place. That's pretty much what the Apostle Paul asked Timothy, his disciple and his apprentice, to do, to put himself in Paul's shoes. In this final letter of the Apostle Paul, just before he would be executed for his faith, he writes to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus, for a variety of reasons. To exhort him to, to clarify the message that he, that he preaches. To warn him once again that the journey ahead will be difficult. And to urge him to follow his own example of faithfully proclaiming the gospel until the very end. To keep the message clear. To be very clear about the source of the gospel. To never forget that this gospel, this good news, is from God. This wasn't just something that Paul made up and shared with Timothy or with others. Christianity isn't some religion that he or any other man invented as a way to approach God. God brought this gospel message to man. In 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul writes, For God has not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power and love and discipline. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me as prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Paul says it was granted, it was revealed, it was brought. In other words, he's saying to Timothy, this is not our message. We've received it, and God has given it according to his own purpose and grace. Paul says, let's be clear about where this good news originated. And he exhorted Timothy to be clear not only about the source of the gospel, but to be clear about the content of the gospel. The gospel is not merely a message about moralism or ethics or social justice. And it's certainly not a way to recover your self-esteem or to heal your damaged emotions. 
The gospel of Christianity has to do with specific historical events, namely the birth, the life, the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus wasn't just any ordinary man. He was the perfect man. He was the God-man. He was the Son of God who taught that he came to earth to fulfill all righteousness and to die on a cross, to lay his life down as a ransom for the sin of whoever would repent and trust in him. And that is exactly the same message that the apostles taught. The good news that God provided for sinners through Jesus what he has demanded from sinners, which is total obedience, perfect holiness. That is the gospel of Christianity. Its source is God himself. Its content centers around the historical work of Christ. So what was Timothy to do with this message? Well, Paul says, Timothy, you're to guard it like a trust. You'll notice down in verse 13 of chapter 1, he says, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Holy Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. He says it's simply this, if you alter it, you will lose it. Don't give out another message. Don't come up with something that has more surface appeal. Don't craft a message better suited to, to modern needs as you see them. Guard it and announce it. The gospel of Jesus Christ alone. Don't truncate it, but don't add to it either. You can imagine if you looked out your, your window at home and you saw the mail man pull up to your mailbox and just before he put your mail into the, into the slot or into the box, you noticed that he was sort of flipping through your mail. And then you noticed that he took a particular envelope and it looked like he was opening up the mail. And, and then he reached in his pocket and he pulled out a pen and you noticed he was starting to edit whatever it was. I mean, this, is, this could have been a, a personal note from, from your significant other, someone that, that you care about and someone that you love. And here this mail carrier is, he's, he's deciding what he wants this communication to say. Or if he doesn't like something in there, he strikes it out or he adds. Well, folks, that's exactly what's going on in the church today with the gospel. So Paul's emphatic. He's telling Timothy, just deliver it the way in which you received it. Because all of this is a trust. So Paul tells Timothy, this has been given to you. Therefore, it is to be held by you. It is to be preserved by you specifically for the purpose of you giving it to others. Of course, that is no easy task, right? I mean, in, in fact, this responsibility is going to be extremely costly. So costly that you might even think about shrinking back. Suffering and opposition will come. And when it does, what will you do? Will you endure it or will you avoid it by disowning the gospel? 
Over and over, Paul encourages Timothy concerning what to do when the journey gets hard. He says there in in verse 8, Don't be ashamed, Timothy. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord. Don't be ashamed of me as his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. In chapter 2, verse 1, he tells him, My son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 3, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Endure hardship like a good soldier. Compete like an athlete. Work hard like a farmer. Endure opposition for the sake of bringing the good news of Christ's reconciling work to the world because the prize for doing so is much more glorious and much more lasting than any soldier or any athlete or any farmer could obtain. And all the way through this letter, even to chapter 4, verse 5, Paul stresses the need for Timothy to endure and to suffer evil treatment and to persevere as a pastor and as an elder and as a faithful minister of the word. But along with that steady charge, Paul also provides instruction for Timothy on just how to do that, how to endure in the face of difficulty how to endure in the face of opposition, not only from, within the, from outside, but from within the church, the, the, very, the threat of false teaching itself. How to persevere through the temptations and the trials of watching over and leading and feeding the flock that God had entrusted into his care. How to be a faithful servant, useful to the master, not just for a season of ministry, or even for a few years, but until the Lord called him home. And in chapter 2, verses 14, down through the end of that chapter in verse 26, Paul mentions several things that are meant to motivate Timothy to be faithful and to persevere through tough times, through dark days. I encourage you to follow along as I read, beginning in verse 14, he writes, Remind them of these things. And solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately handling the word of truth. But avoid worldly and empty chatter for it will lead to further ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. Now, in a large house, there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lust and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations knowing that they produce quarrels. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. 
having been held captive by him to do his will. Well, there's a lot in this particular text. Uh, What I would like to do is just to devote some time this morning looking at really five things that Paul emphasizes to Timothy that will enable Timothy to serve the Lord well. And not just to serve the Lord well in the present, but spiritually speaking, to serve the Lord well until the war is over or until the, the, the athletic contest is won or until the harvest is gathered. We'll call them five keys to an enduring ministry. Five keys to an enduring ministry. Number one, Paul emphasizes to Timothy, focus on the Christian fundamentals. Focus on the Christian fundamentals. Now notice how he begins in verse 14. He says to Timothy, remind them of these things. It's amazing how many times that Paul and and other New Testament writers would say, I'm not going to tell you something that you haven't heard before. In fact, I'm going to remind you of something that we have already discussed and something that you already understand. Now, he did this with Timothy himself in the verses that precede verse 14, all the way starting back really back at verse 8. And here he tells Timothy that he must keep putting these things before the church. So the question is, what are these things? Well, there are things like the bodily resurrection of Jesus. If you were to just go back up to verse 8 and work your way down, some of the things that are mentioned in that section, the bodily resurrection of Jesus, things like the fact that Jesus was the promised Messiah and the descendant of King David, things such as those that Paul mentions beginning in verse 11. He says this in verse 11 is a trustworthy statement indicating that this is something that was well known. It's not new. This has been shared among believers. It was, it was something that was passed from believer to believer and around the churches of that day. He says it is a trustworthy statement, for if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. But if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. In other words, if we died with Christ, and his assumption is, and we all did, if we are true believers... If we died with him, and we all did, we will also share in his resurrection and in his life. And this new life causes us to endure present afflictions. But the prospect is a future reigning with Christ. I mean, that's what's out there for us. All those promises of reigning with Christ, of of the coming kingdom. However, he says... If a professing believer denies Christ in the future, so his assumption is not that they're presently denying him, but that at some point in the future, if a professing believer denies Christ, and some may, the consequence is clear. He will deny them. But know this. Even though true believers are often faithless, as Peter was, Christ remains faithful to us, his promises, and to his own unchanging character. So what are the these things in verse 14? Well, they're the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Think about it for a minute. All the things that we've just discussed. The person of Christ, sovereign election, our union with Christ, our eternal hope, the perseverance of the believer, the preservation of the believer, 
the unchanging character of God, those things that were clearly revealed. So what's interesting here is that Paul's emphasis is on affirmation, not innovation. It's on affirming the things that have already been clearly revealed, not new ideas, not new information, not novelty. I don't know how this might be a blast from the past for some of you, but uh, I'd be interested to know how many of you can remember the days of the abdominizer. Some of you probably still have one of these things somewhere. Some of you are going, what in the world is that? Well, the abdominizer was an abdominal exerciser invented back in 1984 by a Canadian chiropractor, and it was marketed through infomercials uh, by a corporation up in Canton, Ohio. It was an almost flat, saddle-like piece of thermo-formed plastic with handles and a depression for the tailbone. And the infomercial that first was first broadcast in 1988 promised that you would, quote, rock, rock, rock your way to a firmer stomach. By 1992, 1.5 million of these royal blue chairs had been sold from the direct TV advertising, and another 2 million were sold in stores. But here's the problem. You didn't get great abs from just sitting in the seat. And though rocking seemed to be a lot more appealing than traditional sit-ups, it didn't produce the results that people expected. In fact, Wired later described it as, quote, a symbol for TV shopping channels everywhere, a cheaply made overpriced widget that is destined to be unpacked, tried exactly once, and consigned to the basement, end quote. (laughs) So these things are no longer available unless you go, you like garage sales. You might pick one up at at a garage or a yard sale. But when they first came out, I mean, this, this was a, this was a big deal. It's interesting because there's just something about people that makes them want to go after the new thing. That makes them want to go after the thing that that they believe will simplify their lives. Or the thing that will serve as a shortcut. Or the thing that will make their lives more exciting. Paul tells Timothy, when it comes to the Christian life and ministry, don't do that. Stick to the main things. And the main things are the plain things. This is a key to enduring ministry. For that matter, it's a key to success in our Christian walk in general. Focusing on the basics and doing the basics well most of the time. Because you're not going to do them perfectly, and you're not going to do them all the time, but the people that I see in our church and in other churches I've been in The people that consistently and steadily grow and progress in their faith are those who consistently practice the basics and do them well most of the time. And Paul goes on to contrast this needed focus with other things that might distract Timothy from the essentials. In verse 14, he tells Timothy to solemnly charge them in the presence of God not to wrangle about words which is useless and leads to the ruin of the hearers. So Timothy was to first be reminded himself 
and then to continue to warn those in the church not to fight about words, not to engage in word battles, not to make the peripheral central and make the central peripheral. Not to get wrapped up in small little details that aren't even in the text. Why? Well, first because he says it's worthless. It's worthless. It's of no value. It's of no value to the people engaged in these kinds of controversies. It's futile. It's, it's a waste of time and it's a waste of energy. Second, he says, because these wars of words ruin those who may be listening in. In other words, it has the opposite effect of edifying them and building them up. In fact, the word here for ruin is the word we get our term catastrophe from. In other words, this activity is not neutral. It will eventually lead to the overthrow and the destruction of the faith of those who stand by and pay attention to these debates. Paul returns to this threat in verse 16. He says, but avoid worldly and empty chatter. I mean, literally shun, keep clear of profane and empty talk. The ESV translation says, calls it irreverent babble, unholy theological speculation or even joking about hallowed things, sacred things. And he says, why are we to avoid this and shun this? For it will lead, he says, to further ungodliness. In other words, things won't, it won't stay where it is. It will proceed. It will advance more and more toward ungodliness and impiety, and it will lead to spiritual deterioration. Quarreling over words plus godless chatter will ultimately result in doctrinal error and open heresy. And this is basically what he says in verse 17, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, Men who have wandered, they've gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and they upset the faith of some. Some of you may recall the story of Amy Copeland, the 24-year-old Georgia grad student who suffered an injury in a zipline accident. I think it was before the, uh, it was last year, I think before the, the summer months. And that particular injury, following that, subsequently became infected with a rare flesh-eating bacteria. After many weeks, in fact, even months in the hospital, and after being on the brink of death, Amy was finally released from the hospital, but unfortunately had to have both of her hands and her feet amputated. So this this is serious stuff. Paul says, this is what happens... When men and women get away from the fundamentals, the main things, they miss the mark, they wander off course, and they take others with them. So this is the first key to an enduring ministry. Focus on Christian fundamentals. Focus on Christian fundamentals. Key number two, focus on diligent study. Focus on diligent study. Verse 15, be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. So it's, it's the difference between the words in verse 14 and the word in verse 15. 
Paul says, this is where you need to expend your energy. This is the right priority. Not wrangling with those whose motives are questionable and whose influence is factious and destructive, but making haste, making every effort with persistent zeal to labor for God. Giving diligence to the kind and the quality of his work so that when he meets God's inspection, he will stand the test and be approved, having no need for shame because of faulty or shoddy workmanship. And what is the work of God's laborer that Paul mentions here? Handling the word of truth. Broadly speaking, of course, the word of truth refers to, say, the the word of God, which he mentions back in verse 9. But in a more narrow sense, it could simply refer to the gospel itself. In fact, we find this exact phrase in the Greek over in Ephesians 1, verse 13, where Paul says, In him, speaking of Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, that's our phrase, the gospel, so he calls that the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. And what was Timothy to do with the gospel? Paul says, well, he's he's to handle it accurately. The phrase accurately handling is actually one term in the Greek, and it means simply to cut straight. It It was a word that was used to describe the apportioning of food, or the plowing of a field, or the cutting of stones, in some cases the laying out of a new road. Some believe that Paul may have had in the back of his mind his own craft of tent making, and that that process of carefully trimming the individual pieces of animal hide so that they would fit together. Sort of like any of you ladies that may have made a dress or some garment, and you you bought a pattern at the at the store and you brought that home and so you use that pattern and you cut all the individual pieces but you're very careful to do that so that when you put it all together it makes sense looks right so that's 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 a possibility at the minimum paul was encouraging timothy to do the opposite of getting caught up in the latest fads the latest debates and controversies to not be ashamed that he was not pioneering new ideas, to be painstakingly straightforward with the gospel. And concerning his handling of Scripture in general, this was certainly a call for precision and earnest labor. As, As Timothy sought to interpret the word, his task was to cut a path that led straight to the intended goal not taking the devious paths of deceiving interpretations. So it was a call for clarity. It was a call for accuracy. And we say it was even a call for simplicity. Because anyone can make something plain and simple sound difficult. But few can make something difficult sound plain and simple so that people can understand. So... Keys to an enduring ministry. Number one, focus on Christian fundamentals. Secondly, focus on diligent study. The third is this, focus on personal godliness. Focus on personal godliness. Down in verse 20, he says, Now in a large house there are not only gold and silver vessels, but also vessels of wood and of earthenware, and some to honor and some to dishonor. 
Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. So in this passage, Paul compares the church to a large house. In fact, we could compare Faith Community Church, our church, to a large house, a structure big enough that it is filled with many kinds of vessels and instruments. We've got gold vessels. We've got silver vessels. We've got some vessels made of wood. We've got others made of clay. We have vessels of honor. We have vessels for dishonor. We have vessels of different materials and different sizes and shapes. Vessels used for different purposes, some common purposes and other, others for special purposes. And we understand this, right? I mean, we, we wouldn't invite some guests over to our house for dinner and serve them fruit salad out of the kitty litter box, right? I mean, we, in other words, we have different kinds of vessels and containers and utensils, and we use those for certain things, and we don't mix and match those things. They have their, their place, but this, this, I believe, is Paul's main point. Uh, according to verse 21, because there's a lot of speculation, what is Paul doing here? All these different kinds of vessels. Is he talking about people that are Christians, that are not Christians? Is he talking about two different classes of Christians? To me, the, the, the issue is that based on verse 21, the, the main difference between the noble and the ignoble or the honorable and the dishonorable vessels is primarily an issue of purity. That's the point. It's just a, it's a simple issue of which one is clean. Back in the late 90s, Time Life published a book titled The Life Millennium, The 100 Most Important ev Events and People of the Past Thousand Years. In that publication, the author highlighted the life of Louis, Louis Pasteur, who lived in the 19th century and came up with the food-preparing process known as pasteurization. But there was another contribution that, that Louis made, and that was concerning the germ theory. He didn't exactly invent the germ theory, but he did improve on it, and through his experiments, and eventually he developed causes and vaccinations for diseases such as anthrax, uh, TB, cholera, smallpox, rabies, and this was huge. Because in the 1850s and in the 1860s, almost half of the patients who underwent surgery did not survive very long after the surgery. The question is, why, why didn't they? Because they were dying from post-operative sepsis, or they were dying from a, a life-threatening infection. Now, how were these people con contracting these infections? Well, in large part, it was because of dirty, unsanitary surgical instruments. Let me ask you this question. What would you do if you went in for a surgical procedure and you noticed that all of the utensils on the tray there in the operating room had already been used earlier that day and were covered in who knows what? you wouldn't allow them to do the surgery. You'd say, hey, no way. I mean, my, my wife, this, uh, we had one of those, it tends to always happen on Friday afternoons. She had a, a, a crown uh, 
come off Friday afternoon like you know 5:30. It's like you know just as the office is closing. So I called, I called into um, our dentist, and he graciously drove 30 minutes across town in rush hour traffic and met us there at his office. So it was just I was his assistant, <laughs> and he was in blue jeans and running shoes, and we were trying to get this thing, but it was I could tell. You know, of course, you, you know they're sort of out of their element at that point. The routine is sort of they're, they're they're out of their routine, and so I can trust me. My wife was very concerned about is he taking all the precautions that he would normally take. You know, he's grabbing these instruments, and you can hear these drills going and these suction things, this and that, and and I can tell she's just like you know what's going on, and are these things sanitized? Are they clean? Because if they're not, I don't want to do this. Just give me some Percocet. You know, send me home, wait, wait till Monday, right? Well, guess what? God will not reach for an unclean vessel to accomplish his ends. So Paul says, Timothy, if you want to have a successful ministry by God's standards, and if you want to have a ministry that is going to make an eternal difference for the glory of Christ... You must cleanse yourself. And the burden of this text is it's this command. It's on Timothy's shoulders. I mean, clearly in, in the Greek, it's saying, Timothy, this is your responsibility. You must cleanse yourself. And if you don't, you will not be useful to the Lord. You must do this. Now, there are two ways to accomplish this. And both of them are necessary. First... If we are ever going to be useful to the master, we must disassociate from those who are pursuing the kind of controversial wrangling that Paul has already mentioned. Or those who are propagating something other than the gospel of grace or rejecting some essential Christian doctrine like Hymenaeus or Philetus. I mean, as part of this cleansing, is it's you have to disassociate from people that are doing this kind of thing. Or perhaps those who are putting themselves out there in the church as some sort of leader or some sort of teacher or an example, and yet there are all sorts of gross hypocrisy in their lives. If that's the case, Paul's saying, you need to disassociate from them. And this was critical for Timothy to understand if he was going to avoid being entangled in the error or the evil of those false teachers that he was having to address. So that is one aspect of cleansing. And it's focused mainly on those influences around us or outside of us. But there's a second aspect, and it deals with the internal problem, the problem of your own sinful heart. And Paul addresses this in verse 22 when he says, Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So concerning this focus on personal godliness... Paul mentions three very practical elements. What are you running from? What are you running to? And who are you running with? As a believer, what should you be running from as if your life depended on it? Paul says youthful lusts. Now keep in mind, Paul isn't simply referring to sexual lust or bodily appetites. And this certainly isn't an exhortation that's only for young people. I think what Paul's talking about here is he's, he's talking about those desires and those passions that are characteristic of young people 
or perhaps in this context, about all of those temptations that particularly plague the young minister. For instance, pride, or the love of money, or contentiousness, or a display of knowledge, or the desire for prominence, or perhaps the tendency to turn from the traditional to the new and the alluring. I know not every, this is not true of every single young person, but many young men and women both are, let's just say, they're opinionated. I mean, no matter how irrelevant or insignificant the topic, right, they think they know that they have the answer. They're impulsive. They respond without considering the long-term consequences. In some cases, they're just flat-out hard-headed, stubborn, slow to listen, quick to speak, and quick to anger. And Paul says, listen, you have to flee all of these things. You have to, to be skeptical about yourself and your own motives. You have to distrust your own heart Because sin is always an inside job. But what about those things that you need to be running to? Things that you need to be chasing after? Well, once again, Paul points us back to the basics. I mean, these these are not new things. When Paul rattles this list off, righteousness? I mean, you think Timothy's ever heard that word before? I mean, he knows what that's all about. Right conduct that follows the will of God and is pleasing to him. Faith? Trust and reliance upon God and loyalty to his word. Love, selfless sacrifice and a conscious determination to focus on the welfare of another. Peace, harmony in relationships. Paul says we need to be pursuing all of these virtues. And we ought to be doing this with others who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Because no one person is the sole defender of the faith. So the third key to an enduring ministry, focus on personal godliness. If you truly desire to be a vessel of, for honor, you will detect patterns of sin in your life and you will deal with those sins. You will run away from sin. You will run away and flee from temptation. You will run toward Christ and you will strive to imitate him. And as you live this way, you can mark it down, you will become a target. Opposition will come. And you may come face to face with another temptation, the temptation to be overbearing and harsh. And this brings us to the fourth key to an enduring ministry. Focus on relational gentleness. Focus on relational gentleness. Notice verse 24. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Notice what Paul tells Timothy. Yes, you must be an able teacher and a defender of the truth. Yes, you must hold fast to the faithful word. Yes, you must exhort in sound doctrine and refute the error of false teachers. But that is not all. You must also be a peacemaker. You must also be kind to everyone, to all men. You you must endure evil and avoid resentment. You must do what you do with gentleness. 
Listen, when you faithfully teach and you faithfully live the word, there will be a negative reaction from some of those in the church. The truth is going to rub some people the wrong way, and some of those individuals will make a decision to wrong you. So what do you do when this happens? Paul says, well, you put up with the evil mistreatment. You put up with it. You might be slandered. You might be falsely accused. You might be opposed. You might be unfairly criticized. But it is never acceptable for you to get down in the mud with your opponents and to duke it out with some attitude of pride and selfish ambition. Your job is to be consistently like Jesus no matter what other people are like. To exhibit tenacity without meanness. To exhibit firmness without harshness. To be able to both articulately speak and wisely remain silent. Why? Well, for starters, as Paul mentions at the outset of verse 24, if you know Christ, guess what? You're his slave. Which means your opinion doesn't count. It's not for you to decide if gentleness is mandatory or optional. Christ is the one who makes that decision. Second, God may just decide to use your faithful teaching and your display of mercy and kindness and gentleness to produce repentance in the heart of those who oppose the truth. Wouldn't that be something? So don't trade in your walk with God or your testimony because someone else is ignorant or unstable or having a bad day. Paul says, listen, focus on relational gentleness. It's interesting, isn't it? To, in the same chapter, tell someone you are to be a good soldier for Christ. And then by the end of the chapter to be saying, and you're to be kind to all men. It just doesn't, those images in our minds don't tend to fit together. But Paul's saying, be a soldier, compete hard, work hard, endure hardship, but don't let hardship harden your heart towards other people. Focus on relational gentleness. Key number five, focus on divine involvement. Focus on divine involvement. It's so easy for us in the trenches of life and ministry to hone in on the activity of men and overlook the activity of God. The road gets hard, the temperature begins to rise, the pressures in life escalate, and we sometimes fail to notice the fact that God is at work in, not only in our lives but in the lives of those to whom we minister. And Paul was concerned about this common problem among believers, even among those who led the church. And so he regularly called attention to the Lord's work and his involvement. Back in verse 14, Paul urged Timothy to remind those whom he charged in the church that they were being called into accountability before God himself. In the very next verse, he reminded Timothy that he was to labor in the word with the understanding that God alone would be the one to examine his life and conduct. Right after Paul mentions the destructive nature of irreverent babble and false teaching in verses 16 to 18, 
it's as if he anticipates a discouraging concern on Timothy's part about the inroads of this false teaching and its effects on some in the church. Or perhaps the possibility that Timothy may wonder if a massive falling away is to follow. So notice what he says in verse 19. Nevertheless, the firm foundation of God stands. Having this seal, the Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who names the name of the Lord is to abstain from wickedness. So in contrast to the insecurity of false teaching, Paul focuses on the stability of God, the stability of God's truth, and his program. He's saying, even though some in the church have departed from the truth, yet the church stands firm. God has put his own seal on his church by a double inscription. The foundation is sealed with one seal bearing two inscriptions, two complementary parts. One, the fact of God's superintending knowledge of his elect. Number two, the fact that such true believers will abstain from wickedness. So Paul says, the Lord knows, folks. Listen, the Lord knows those who are his. God knows how to differentiate between those who are true and those who are false. And this knowledge of infallible discernment should have encouraged Timothy, who may have been discouraged concerning all of the unworthy elements in the church. And finally, notice what Paul says at the end of our passage, verse 24. He talks about him not being quarrelsome and teaching and being patient. And then notice he says, with gentleness, verse 25, correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. He basically says, Timothy, you correct with gentleness, but then you leave it with God. It is not okay for you to manipulate people. It is not okay for you to coerce them or to strong arm them into submitting to the gospel, much less your own personal opinions. God is the one who must enlighten their minds. God is the one who must soften their proud hearts. Your job is to trust him. There is no guarantee that they will change in their thinking. There is no guarantee that they will turn from their error or that they will go in the right direction. Only God knows because he is the one who grants repentance and he may or may not choose to do that. So Paul says in one more way, focus on divine involvement. Don't ever forget that God knows. Don't ever forget that God is good. And don't ever forget that God is able. Think about Paul's parting words. Chapter 4 and verse 16, at the end of this epistle, he says, At my first defense, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that through me the proclamation might be fully accomplished and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was convinced of God's activity. And he wanted Timothy to be equally convinced. Well, what about you? If you are a Christian, you must be willing to endure suffering. 
and opposition to the truth. When opposition to the gospel comes, you have a choice. You can endure it or you can avoid it by disowning the gospel. Often in life, we can hold the gospel in one hand and our comfort with the other. We walk around carrying both, saying that we value the gospel more than our comfort. Circumstances permit us to carry both, so who's to question our sincerity? But suppose at some point in the near future, a difficult trial hits you. Maybe your coworker, a teammate, a family member challenges your Christian faith. The opposition becomes so strong that it takes both hands to hold on to one of the two things. And then you have a choice. You can be faithful to the gospel or you can hold on to your comfort. Which one are you going to hold on to? Are you going to let go of the gospel in order to keep your comfort? Or are you going to let go of your comfort in order to keep the gospel? I pray that you settle that question today. And even even if your present circumstances don't seem that bad, I love this this quote, really a warning by John Piper. Some of you are familiar with him. He says this, quote, If you don't find your satisfaction in God and in God alone, you will count him as an enemy when he hands you over to the sword. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for its encouragements. Lord, encouragements to keep the main things the main things. Encouragement to to be diligent in our study of Scripture, to pursue personal holiness and purity and godliness, to treat others with kindness and gentleness, and to never forget that you are always at work And you always are using the people in our lives and the circumstances of life to purify and to strengthen our faith. Lord, we pray that you would graciously permit us to know you and to serve you in greater ways. Keep us, O Lord, and use us for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.